Welcome to an audio teaching from Windsor Park Baptist Church in Auckland, New Zealand. If you would like to look at the message notes or see some questions for reflection that take their lead from today's teaching, head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz and head to the online tab where you'll see services and series and you can download different resources from there. Thanks for joining us and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. Kia ora everybody. If you've got a book next to you, I'd challenge you to randomly open it up to any page and read a paragraph. I'll do that with the book that I'm reading now, Tom Holland's Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Big, thick book. Randomly open to a paragraph. To suffer was to gain redemption. In 1231, when Elizabeth died of her austerities at the tender age of 24, Conrad did not hesitate to hail her as a saint. Just a random paragraph. Now, naturally, you'll find that for most books like this, the paragraph you read will make no sense unless you understand the wider context of where that paragraph fits into the bigger story of the book, as that paragraph would make sense if you understood the history. Unfortunately, most of us who read the Bible do this exact practice for most of our lives. We find a random verse and interpret what it's saying without understanding who was writing it, who they were writing it to, why they were writing it, and what else was being said around it. Asking these questions and a few others is life-giving and helps us immensely to see what God is saying to us through the whole Bible. I want to endorse two books to sit next to your Bible, both written by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. One's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and the other How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Excellent resources for us. Well, today is week four of a series I introduced in mid-February called Romans, the letter that changes everything. We're working our way through a letter in the Bible that is described in one of the books I've just mentioned as being arguably the most influential book in Christian history, perhaps in the history of Western civilization. A huge claim. The Apostle Paul, its author, says some big things about understanding the gospel, God's righteousness received through faith in Jesus Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is a lot in this letter that was written to a church in Rome. A few weeks ago, Caleb took us through a section of the letter, a section that has its title in most of our Bibles as being God's wrath against humankind, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. But of course, you can't read that section without first considering what I talked about the week before, when Paul writes about the gospel being the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, chapter 1, verse 8 to 17, which you won't quite understand without hearing Paul introducing himself in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, when he outlines who he is and what he's being called to communicate. In summary, you can't just randomly pick out a verse in chapter 1 and say anything about it without first understanding the flow of the overall letter. This is true when we come to chapter 2 today. Everything that Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans flows out of what he has written in chapter 1, which we could summarize as saying was all about the gospel being good news to those who embrace it, in fact, amazing, life-changing, eternity-shaping news, or not so good news 
to those who don't embrace it. You can see the flow working itself out in the first verse of chapter 2 because of the word that Paul uses. He writes, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. The key word here is therefore. Paul is saying, in the Grant Harris paraphrased version, because of everything I've said to you so far, you therefore have no excuse to judge people because you're in the same boat. None of you can live up to the righteousness that God offers except through Christ. So just leave the judgment of who's saved and who's not up to him. (laughs) And based on that, Listen to the flow of how he outworks that in the rest of chapter 2, verses 2 through 29. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life, but... For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness, also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, 
If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, there's a lot in there. <laughs> a whole chapter's worth. But if we were to stand back and take away all the comments that are directed at the tension that existed between Jews and Gentiles at that time. That is countered by what Paul writes earlier in chapter 1 verse 16, that the good news of the gospel applies to everyone. Then there's an obvious theme identified at the beginning of this passage. But let's briefly just look at the tensions we're taking away. Jews judged Gentiles because they didn't live under the law of Moses, which meant they didn't consider circumcision a religious requirement. Gentiles judged Jews because they lived under the law and considered circumcision a religious requirement. Now, we could have a long discussion about the law and about circumcision. Uh, maybe we would focus on the law a little bit more because it's a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> But Paul here is saying it's not really worth arguing about those things because both Jews and Gentiles were as bad as each other. So there was no point in Jews judging Gentiles or Gentiles judging Jews as they both were failing to live up to the righteousness of God that is only possible through faith in Jesus, not through deeds. As he has already said in chapter 1, Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written back into the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Now, Paul gets this point across by asking six rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are ones that don't need answers. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Verse 22, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Or you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Or in verse 23, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The answers are clear. Of course they do these things. And in verse 26, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The answers are obvious. No one is perfect. So you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now this is deeply challenging stuff. Because we received emails after Caleb's message a few weeks ago asking us why we didn't condemn certain behaviors that are intimated in chapter 1, verse 24 to 32. And there's a long list of them. Now, while no list in Scripture is ever complete, how could we judge certain behaviors when we're just as guilty as anyone else of not living in the fullness of God's righteousness? 
that passage was simply saying that when we deliberately ignore the good news of the gospel, there are consequences in eternity for that, for for all of us. So what Paul is driving at in chapter 2 is that a, a picture paints a thousand words. How we live our lives displays whether or not we're allowing the righteousness of God to actually shape our heart, which then affects how we live. Paul is asking a question in words that we're familiar with here at Windsor Park. Are we doing life and faith together? And that, my friends, is a question that only you can answer. And we aren't to judge what we see in someone else's life. Yet, tragically, that is what the church is known for. So much more than being known for looking at ourselves and working on what God might be saying to us about how we live. And most of you will know that I've been involved in professional basketball for close to 15 years. I'm privileged to know most of New Zealand's top basketballers. Because of these relationships, you know, we could place 100 chaplains in basketball communities tomorrow if we had the people to do so. But that's another discussion for another day. Over these years, I've had the privilege to sit down and talk with many players to help them navigate difficult circumstances in their lives and to pray for them. If there is one thing that they all say they don't like, it's the responsibility of being a public figure and a role model. They signed up to play basketball at the highest level, not to be judged on how they live their lives. But whether they like it or not, that is just part of being a professional sports person these days, particularly when you're representing your country. The way they live their lives matters. And sometimes their careers depend on it. Many times I've had to sit down and help players think about how they're living in the public gaze that will honour the clubs, the teams, and the organisations that they're part of and represent. As hard as it might be to accept, this is what Paul is saying about those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. How we live matters because it shows how willing we are to work out the salvation that is available to everyone. So rather than judging someone else, Paul is saying to have a good hard look at ourselves. To quote an old saying, actions speak louder than words. And this was so important for Paul to communicate, as he was wanting the good news of the gospel to be preached into the city of Rome where he hoped to visit as part of his missionary journeys, a a city that was so influential because of its significance at the time. But he also knew that the church was divided against itself. And he so desperately wanted these early Christians to be more focused on living in the light of faith than spending their time judging the lives of each other, Jews against Gentiles and vice versa. In Luke 15, 11 to 32, Jesus tells the story of the lost son or or the prodigal son, as many of you would know it. It's the story of a son who wanted his inheritance before his father died, unheard of at the time and mostly still today. Most of you will know how the story goes. The son squanders his inheritance in what is called wild living, reminiscent perhaps of what is described in Romans 1, 18 to 32. After a while, When he has lost everything, he realizes he has made a terrible mistake and he returns with his tail between his legs to his father, who is filled with compassion and runs to his son, 
throws his arms around him and kisses him. This picture would have been outrageous for the people who were hearing it for the first time. It's so outrageous. It's the perfect picture of the compassion that our Father God has for us. No matter who we are, when we came to the point of knowing and experiencing that, that the gospel has power, the power of God for salvation for us, he welcomes us. And the son is welcomed back home with open arms. The best robe is placed on him. A ring is put on his finger, sandals on his feet. The fattened calf is killed and a celebratory feast is called, which is all well and good, except from the viewpoint of the other son. The one who stayed with his father and did everything that was expected of him. And, and now he's angry about the perceived injustice that he sees unfolding. Why would everyone celebrate the return of my lost brother? He asks his father. The last couple of verses bring the story to an end. Luke 15, 31 to 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He, he was lost and is found. Truth, right? Maybe it doesn't seem fair, but everything that the lost son has found had, had always been available to the older brother. So why doesn't he want to celebrate the return of his wayward younger brother? The challenging part of the story is that the ending is unresolved. We're left wondering. How did the older son respond? Did he celebrate or did he continue to judge? And when we look at the lives of those around us, that question remains pertinent. Do we do all we can to encourage those around us to return to the Father? Or do we spend our time judging those who don't fit the boxes that we've predetermined someone should fit in? Folks, in our time, in light of what Paul writes in this letter to the church of his time, we don't have time to judge the lives of others. And this letter would say that we're hypocrites if we do. If we aren't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, then let's live out our faith by focusing on allowing the Spirit to heal our wounds and deal to our insecurities and to put our faith into action through our love, grace and Compassion to those around us. May that be what we are known for, as Paul hoped the church in Rome would be known for. In the words of Mother Teresa, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. May our lives reflect the love of God's and not the judgment of our flawed humanity. Let's pray. Father, this was a long passage, chapter 2 of Romans, set against the background of Paul declaring who he is, talking about the power of God for the salvation of all people, all people who choose to follow. And afterwards, he describes what happens if we choose not to follow. Because of that whole chapter 1, we are challenged not to judge our, our brothers and sisters, those we sometimes look down upon, those who might live their lives in ways different from ours, those who might make different decisions to what we make, those who look different to us. Father, 
convict us of our sin when we do that. Because all of those people that we judge are made in your image. And they are intricately woven together and loved by you. And you have a plan for their lives as much as you do for ours. So Father, forgive us when we unfairly judge people. This passage declares, as do other passages in this letter to the Roman church that we'll look at later on, it says, we have all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. And so, Father, might we look at others with love and grace and compassion rather than judgment, pointing them towards you through the way that we live, and through the words that we use, through the attitudes that we carry that translates into the ways that we live our lives and interact with people. Might those words of Mother Teresa impact us? And when we are loving people, we don't have time to judge. We don't want to judge. We just want to see people come to you. So might this challenging long passage take root in our hearts and the context of it within the book of Romans might it continue to, to feed us and nourish us and deepen our faith and ultimately to help us do life and faith in ways that bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining our audio teaching today. If there are ways that we can continue to support you or help you in your journey, please reach out to us. Head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz, and you'll find various ways to contact us. God bless.